All right, we're about to get into our interview with Virginia Katz, but before we do that, I need to thank our sponsors, Videoblocks, because without them, we couldn't afford to do this. What I do with their support is I either put it towards editing, I put it towards server costs, anything like that. So without Videoblocks, we couldn't have done this, and it's greatly appreciated. Now, if you haven't heard of Videoblocks, check it out, videoblocks.com slash network. As I mentioned in other ads, I've used it for various projects, especially for documentaries. I've also even used it occasionally for fiction. There and used it occasionally for fiction. There are some pretty amazing stuff on their page. And I've even had uh, listeners who've bought into it with this amazing deal of $149 for everything actually email me and message me on Twitter and tell me how much they appreciate it. So check it out. You don't have to buy it, but if you go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG, check it out, see if you like it. And if you do, then purchase it. And you're going to videoblocks.com slash AOTG actually helps us. So with all that said, when you go there, you get studio quality stock footage, audio and images for a fraction of the cost with Videoblocks. That's 150,000 videos, 100,000 audio clips, and 400,000 images for $149. It's very unheard of. All the content is royalty free, so you can use it for anything from commercials and films to just your personal projects. And new content is constantly added, all right? So you have to check this out. That's videoblocks.com slash AOTG. You can go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG to get all the video stock, audio stock, images stock that your heart can imagine for $149. That's videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash AOTG to save on millions of studio quality clips, tracks, and graphics. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and today we have Virginia Katz. Now, I did this interview months ago, as you noticed with my last one with Lynn Willingham, and this one is all about Beauty and the Beast. And we had hoped to get this up earlier, but as I mentioned, we had a small fire in the building that our cutting room's in, so we were sidelined for a bit. But now we've got it out of the can, we cut it up, we tightened it up, and we're excited to give it to you. And I need to thank Carly McKeating for doing all this editing. It's been a huge support. And of course, if you skipped our ad at the beginning, I understand. I listen to podcasts too, and sometimes the ads can go a little long. But we couldn't have covered our costs without the support of Videoblocks. So if you're looking for a deal on all the stock footage, images, and audio you can think of, go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG and you'll get everything for $149. So back to my interview with Virginia. This is going to be very specifically focusing on the visual effects and editing because I'm always fascinated, as you'll notice throughout my interviews, with how the heck do you cut something that doesn't exist? And so I'm always trying to figure out pacing and, and timing and story structure if things don't exist. But with all that said, here's my interview with Virginia Katz. So how did you get into film and specifically film editing? My father was a film editor and I was in college one summer and my dad had his own film company. So my parents wanted me to work and I went in and started working with him. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I just walked in one day and he started teaching me and that was it. I always say, because I truly feel it was 
so destined for me because I'd never thought of film, even though my father was an editor and I'd go on the set as a child and uh, see what was going on. I was never real enamored by it or anything like that. And so when I found myself in the editing room, it just all of a sudden everything turned around and I loved it almost from the very beginning. And it was great. A, my father was fantastic to work for. And in those days, we were working on film. He handed me a scene maybe three weeks into my apprenticeship, so to speak, and just said, cut this, you know, and I barely knew what that meant. So if somebody talked, I'd cut to that person. And then the other person talked, I'd cut to that person. And when I looked at it, I realized, you know, obviously something was wrong. It looked terrible. And so little by little, he would constantly give me film to cut. And I learned from a great editor. You know, I was his assistant for a while and he would always give me scenes to cut. So that's how I learned. And, you know, it was really, truly a blessing to have him and to be able to do something I loved and to feel comfortable doing it. Is there something that he sort of taught you that you take with you from project to project? I was cutting a scene and wanted to do something. I don't even know what it was anymore. And I thought I couldn't do it, like jump the line or I don't even remember. And he said, there are no rules in editing. You can do whatever you think works. So I always take that with me is that there are no rules in editing. You know when you can jump a line and not jump a line or do things that sometimes you feel, oh, I don't know about that. You know, that's kind of odd. But you try it. And that little saying made me feel like anything you want to try, and especially now with the Avids, you try it. If it doesn't work, you change it. But don't go by any rule of anything. So that was the main thing that I take with me that he said. So how did you get from assisting your your father to working on big projects like uh, Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> Many years. <laughs> I started out in New York, where that's where my father's company was. And I worked with him until I became an assistant. And then even in New York, I did some editing on some television shows or whatever. But then he moved to California. I moved to uh, London for a couple of years. And then when I came back to New York, I realized that the film business really was in Los Angeles. And if I wanted to do movies, and he, he did movies too. He worked with Frank Perry in, in New York and a, a number of directors before my time and some during my time. Anyway, I came back from London, realized there's nothing really happening at that time in New York and knew I have to come to Los Angeles where I could do movies and do the kind of movies that I wanted to do. So I did. And so many people in New York said, oh, you, you know, at the time, the unions, there was no reciprocity between New York and Los Angeles. So I got a lot of people saying, oh, you will never get into that union. It's so hard. And, you know, that's another thing I have to say that I think I learned from just working with my father is that don't let anybody tell you no. You just do it. If you feel like that's what you want to do or however you want to move, you just go for it. So I did. I started calling who was then the, I don't know, one of the union reps and saying, oh, I'm going to be coming to L.A. And I finally did. And when, they, when I got here, I called him. He knew who I was. 
And I had to start, I was an apprentice for about six weeks, then an assistant. And I worked for a woman named Marion Rothman. She was doing a lot of big movies at the time. She worked with Alan Pakula and Strictly Movies. So my father and a friend of hers were mutual friends. She was looking for an assistant to go back to New York with her on a movie. I could do both now. So I went with her and I, that's how I basically moved into features and worked as her assistant for probably about seven years. And then I met Bill Condon on one of those movies. I'd done some cutting for her on a number of movies, and we were on a movie. I think it was his first directing job, and I was an editor. We were on location in Louisiana. And I ended up doing cutting on that. And next time he went on to do a TV movie, he asked me to do it. So that started my relationship with Bill. And through these many years, we went from TV movies to features and to eventually Beauty and the Beast. I feel people like me who hook into a relationship early, it just happens. You know, it's so lucky. And being who Bill is, he has a lot of different, you know, we've done a lot of different genres and You know, I've worked with him all these years, and it's just been another blessing. And it was just luck that I would meet him, that I got to cut things that he saw. And from then on, you know, he was somebody I've worked with now for over 20 years. So it feels like I've always had that streak of luck that I would wish on anybody, because I think, you know, it's just so rare in this business to have somebody who you form a relationship with. And you can continue to work with and grow with and, yeah, and trust. So that's how it led to eventually Beauty and the Beast. Moving into Beauty and the Beast, one of the things, you know, if I'm talking to editors or, you know, working on a project, we get the rushes. We look at the emotion in the character's face and we look at how things move. But in something like this, you have a guy dressed up in a gray suit who plays the beast. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really get the emotion out of that character. So how do you determine what shots to use with someone like the beast when you're, when your actor is in a gray suit? Well, Dan Stevens, he was in a gray suit, but you could see his face. You know, when he was in close up, you saw his eyes, you saw his expression, you would, cut the looks, you'd still have the looks and it's all about performance. So regardless of whether he was in a gray suit or not, his face was open and had the expressions and the emotion and whatever it is that we were looking for. I did it in that same way. It's always about performance and story, regardless of whether he's walking around in stilts and a gray suit and playing against Belle, Emma, when they look at each other, it's still about the performance. So did they transcribe it or move his face to the, the beast later on? or how Yes. Did... Okay. So, I mean, they used, we based the beast's expressions off his expressions. And he would, you know, we'd get something in, in the eye movement. We'd remember that, no, no, he, he didn't. I remember that he, you know, looked to the left or whatever And Paul Wagner, who was our visual effects editor, always kept everything on, you know, the different levels. So we always could refer back to what we remember and what we liked. So that's how we went about getting the performances. Well, I was going to, I was sort of to expand on that. You have a scene like the Be Our Guest scene, which is almost. Yeah, that's what I was going to go into. Yeah, Yeah. which is almost 100%. I figured you were going there. Yeah. Well, 
for instance, I was going to go to when Belle is in the cell, the door opens and she first meets Lumiere and then Cogsworth. So we shoot Belle and she comes out and she looks and she sees at first nothing. I mean, we have a previs. So we know what's going to be there and what's going to happen. And sometimes, you know, we have a very low-level animated version of what the action is. So I use that to cut with and having the real person, Emma. Basically, I cut it like I'm looking at what I know the final shot will be. The final Lumiere may take, you know, months and months to get the real Lumiere. And again, then you're dealing with the animation, you know, even though they're creating his face, his expression has to be the same way as if he were real. It goes through all these uh, iterations so that the eye movement's right, so that, you know, the, the way he's holding on to the lever is right. But when I cut, I have a very basic kind of sketch of that. And that's what I use. And as better versions come in, you have to kind of mold, you know, the choreography or whatever. There are little things you always have to fix. But for the most part, there is an outline. And then, you know, when she turns to Cogsworth and we don't have anything happening, really, we know what that's going to be. We have the dialogue and we have a very, you know, a limited kind of version. You know, it sounds more difficult than it is, but the thing about the effects of the characters is that you can change those. So the more of them we get, just like in Be Our Guest, you know, you say, well, he should be looking right to left. And so the special effects guys, you know, like Kelly and Kyle, will give us another version. You know, so we are constantly tweaking things, which takes us basically to Be Our Guest, which was the whole thing was special effects. So what I had is a previs. And, and Belle, they had her close up, but all the backgrounds and everything's real. And so we had a previs for that. And as shots started coming in, I could start dropping them in. And we know that they have to sing and we know that they're going to be in a certain place because we have a previs. But if it doesn't work, it may be different than the previs. So the good thing is in, in creating these characters they can be updated all the time with a smile or, or we decide, no, they should be doing this and not this. Or when he jumps off the table, that's not quite right. So it's constantly playing with the timing, with the rhythm as those characters become more and more real. It almost sounds liberating in a way because it's not like if I get footage and it's real people and it doesn't work, I'm stuck with that footage. Whereas this sounds like it's like, you know what, we got to change it this way, change it that way. Right. It does give you a freedom. Yeah, it's a slower process, but it sounds more freeing in a way. Definitely. And it's complicated, though, like in Be Our Guest. You're dealing in a, a musical, which is a lot of action and all these different things going off or the plates flying or whatever it is. There were so many elements. So little by little, as we get those things in, you know, things shift. But when it starts to really come together, it's so exciting because we have a vision and we have, we've seen a previs, so we know what we're going to get, more or less. And when you start seeing the effects coming in, really, it's an amazing process. It's just so much fun to watch the characters come alive. So how does, how does that work if in a more realistic 
situation because um, you brought up the music as as one of the defining features for the rhythm. So if the music is going and it has its own rhythm, but the actor's rhythm's off or the momentum of the scene isn't working, how do you rework the footage to overcome a problem like that? Well, my job is basically to make it work. So, <laughs> And it is choreographed. I mean, we did Dream Girls, which was, you know, the beats have to be at a certain point. If the rhythm didn't work, then I'm not doing something right. Yeah. All of the footage of the dancers, say, at the opening in the white, the takes were just all, t- you know, they shoot to the music and it's beautiful. So when I get it and start cutting it, I have to stay with that rhythm. And if they curtsy and all of a sudden it's a beat late, well, I've done something wrong. So it's really up to me to make sure that the rhythm is as it should be. And I mean, I love it. I love doing the musical. That scene is so beautiful. And, you know, we had a lot of footage, so it allows for a lot of beautiful shots and they all have to make sense choreographically and musically. And sometimes, I mean, if to go back to Dream Girls, for instance, there were times when a scene with music choreographed went on too long and we would have to lift out, say, a section of music. But yet you couldn't lose the choreography. So you couldn't just snip out a piece and then all of a sudden they're sitting or standing. You know, it all has to make sense. So when you do cut out music, you have to do it in a place that A, musically makes sense and B, choreographically makes sense and most importantly, doesn't hurt the story or what you're trying to say to the audience. I mean, I love musicals and I love all of that. It's like always kind of puzzle. But going back to, you know, the rhythm of a scene, the rhythm of a musical is up to me to make sure that that works. Now, one of the things I was wondering, because when I watched Beauty and the Beast, one of the things I noticed is that there was cartoon elements that had to be removed Uh, Because it would be almost impossible to do with real people. So things like Gaston eating the eggs all at once or something like that. When you were working, what were some of the things that you guys had to alter to adjust for reality in the editing process? Well, it is Beauty and the Beast, but it's an updated version of it. If you look at the two bells, they're very different. You know, we have a modern day bell who in the animated version wouldn't do what the Emma Watson version did. And obviously this was worked out before and you create other ways to show the same thing. Because in the lyrics, he says, you know, I ate a dozen eggs or whatever it is, the lyric about the eggs, which is the lyric. So you don't have to see him eating it. And it's it's funny because this is to me, um, it's the animated version gone turbo. It was what we, you know, were going for, which was a strong bell a woman in her time who was out of step with the rest of the village because she had a strong will and she wanted to read and could read, which the others couldn't because she learned to do that. And, you know, she's the one who comes to save her father. And it's just the character of Belle is so different. So in this version, it's much more modern. So he didn't have to down three eggs. I'm sure Luke would have if he had had to. (laughs) But you can do it in song and you can do it by lifting, you know, he lifts up LeFou and the woman, you know, so he it's done in a different way. Mm -hmm. The basic story is the same, 
but as I say, amped up tremendously. I do have one last question that I like to ask all the editors that I interview, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? My favorite guilty pleasure film to watch. Does that mean like my favorite film? I like to think of it as like a film that you're, you know, flipping channels on television and you come across it. And even though it's not something you would go out and rent, you'll just watch it. Oh, my God. I would say Godzilla or Frankenstein or Rodan, you know, these old horror movies. I would always stop and watch King Kong. I would stop and watch those. Do you do you like the new ones, too, or just the old ones? Well, I I have to say they don't compare to the original, I have to say. Um, But I always have hope because, I mean, I go and see them. I mean, I will be the first person in theater, but they don't always satisfy that original, like, excitement that I had watching it for the first time. Yeah. You know, but I always love all of the Draculas, Frankensteins, all of that. that. Those were as a kid, you know, never could get enough of. So now when I'm flipping through, I would stop there. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for letting me interview you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That was my interview with Virginia. I'd like to thank Virginia. And of course, I'd like to thank the American Cinema Editors and Jenny McCormick for putting me in touch with Virginia. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, info at AOTG.com or of course on Twitter at AOTG Network. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>